about it. It's noontime, so I think we'll go ahead and get started, knowing that there may be a few stragglers. So good afternoon, everyone. I'm Beth Hastings. I'm the Director of Continuing Nursing Education. Oh, wow. Hi, Ellen. Hi. Wow. People we haven't seen in a while. So welcome, everyone. We're happy to have you here, those of you who are joining us here at Dartmouth Hitchcock and those of you who are joining us from afar. Um, the topic of today's Nursing Grand Rounds is improving sepsis outcomes, recognizing sick sooner. And the purpose of the presentation is to discuss our organizational improvement efforts with sepsis work and where we're going next. Um, the learning outcome for this session is that you'll be able to describe SuperSERS criteria and better identify potential sources of infection. So, before we begin, of course, my usual housekeeping tasks need to be completed. Uh, after the program, you will receive an email from the Center for Learning and Professional Development, and that's the old CCEHS. You'll receive a link to an online evaluation. Your credit will be posted to your online transcript uh, within two weeks after, after today, um, but we do want you to um, complete your online evaluation as soon as possible. Um, please be sure if you're here in the room to sign in, and you must attend at least 80% of this program in order to receive full credit. Uh, for those viewing online, we usually have Judy Langhans monitoring her email with her computer. However, Amy's using her computer, so what we'll do is check in right after Amy completes and then check for any emails um, with questions for Amy. So if you do have an email during the, uh, a question during the presentation, Judy's email is Judith dot m as in may dot langhans l-a-n-g-h-a-n-s at hitchcock.org and we'll, we'll check those as soon as we can. Um, also for folks who are viewing online please email Judy within an hour of completion of this program. Let her know that you participated. Uh, she'll need your name, degree, and zip code. Uh, for anyone who needs to access your online transcript there are instructions on our website on how, how to get that information. So we want you to know that neither our speaker nor any members of the planning committee have identified a financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity and no one refused to disclose. So at this time, I would like to introduce our famous keynote speaker, <laughs> Amy Curley. Not only is Amy a clinical specialist in the, in the emergency department here at DHMC, she's an expert on this topic and she presented this topic at the uh, Sigma Theta Tau International Annual International Conference um, just last month. So we're really happy that she's able to share this with us today. So please join me in welcoming her. Yes, it was very difficult in Puerto Rico. <laughs> I didn't add that. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard. So um, actually, I am Amy Curley, I'm the clinical specialist for the emergency department. I'm fairly new here to DH and DH. Time. I've only been here for about two and a half, almost three years, and I am a liaison from the Center for Nursing Excellence to the ED, and now also I'm owned by the ED as well. Doesn't matter for this point. Recognizing sick sooner, using super criteria to identify sick sooner, and if you notice, I did choose the word sick and not septic, and I did that deliberately, and we're going to talk about that. So I'm not going to read the objectives. You can read the objectives. I don't have um, I don't have any conflicts to disclose here. So 
in the past, I have done this talk many, many, many times, and one thing that I have um, forgotten to mention, it's funny, I, I make assumptions, and with newer nurses, uh, there are times that they truly don't know what sepsis is, and we do really do have some bedside nurses here today, so I'm give some brand new graduates, and I'm going to pick on them, and I'll tell you what I'm going So sepsis is a consequence, consequence of infection that is difficult to fit, diagnose, and treat. Patients who develop sepsis have an increased risk of complications and death, and face higher healthcare costs and longer treatment. I really, really want to focus on one thing, that sepsis is not a disease itself. Um, the best analogy I can give, and I give this to students a lot, kind of like when you say people don't die from AIDS. People die from complication of AIDS. Sepsis is what I think of as a complication from an infection that's generally caused from something else. So I work with a wonderful, I have wonderful mentors, many of them are in this room, and when I oftentimes when you tell or teach or explain things to people, they want a comparison. Where, what are you comparing your data to? So we, Dartmouth is part of something called the HVHC High Value Healthcare Collaborative. It's a combination of 17 healthcare delivery systems, and their goal is to serve a market more than 70 million people across the United States and deliver value-based care. There are people in here that could speak to this better than I can, but ultimately we have these, all these other hospitals that we get together and share data. So in this particular case, when we're talking about our data compared to other people's data, we're talking about this group of people, which is a fairly large group of hospitals, and that's what we're using to benchmark our <coughs> progress and process. So um, who's a Seinfeld fan? Uh, what? Okay, there's a few of us. So I, um, if, if you're very good friends with Jim Weinstein, please, this is not, this is not offensive, but I sometimes picture this. So I picture, I picture Jim Weinstein sometimes as Georgia, is Seinfeld, right? And he said, and if you guys ever watch Steinfeld, he Steinbrenner often comes up with these crazy, crazy things and, and says, George, go make it happen. You guys remember that? Mm -hmm. So I picture, I picture George, Dr. Weinstein sitting and he's looking at the spaceline data of DH. And he gets this delivered to him by whom I'm not exactly sure, but about two and a half, three years ago. And what he sees, this is DH. This is the HVHC comparative data. What he sees is the mortality rate for people that come into the ED with sepsis is 38%. The acceptable rate, or what we're seeing across from those HVHC collaboratives is 15%. The average length of stay, 9.1 days. HVHC, 4.1. More importantly, and I think this is most important to point out right now, the bundle compliance, the three-hour bundle compliance, which is evidence-based practice on the initiation of goal-directed therapy for our septic patients, 6%. 74% was our benchmark mark, or where we should be at. So again, I picture Steinbrenner saying, George, I don't care how you fix it, make it happen. <laughs> so that is how we kind of got started with this. We had, we're going to say a fake George, which was really Dr. Tanzier came into the ED and said, I have this project for you guys, and I need you to make it happen. So the three-hour bundle, the three-hour bundle, seriously, how hard can this be? And, and this was, I think, is there anyone in here from the ED? But besides you guys. So, and Terry used to be from the ED, but it was also ED. How hard can this be, right? Because ED nurses are very good at recognizing sick. We are. We, we pride ourselves on making it the Zoll out and the AED attached and a patient defibbed in under 60 seconds. But I tell you what, 
when it comes to recognizing a potentially septic patient, drawing a lactate, <coughs> cultures, fluid, and initiating antibiotics, we weren't very good at this. And we had to have it proved, proven to us. So we called it, we called in a very special team. And someone like me, people who know me well know that I see something in the end and it just go for it. I don't care how you get there, just start running and get there. Apparently there is a methodology of sustainability. <laughs> There's a better way to do things. And we do have a team here, the Value Institute team that gave us an expert, Sam Schills. I don't know if any of you are familiar. There's a few of the other black belts here today. It showed us that there might be a better way to achieve our end goal. So this is funny. When I say, how hard can this be? We just have to recognize this patient and treat him. This is what the black belts, their specialty is. This is the patient walking in. All these processes were what was taking place to get to the patient to where they needed to be disposition or point of decision. So all these little boxes uh, were representative of a process that needed to be addressed to make that more succinct. So I am going to skip a ton of this because I really want to focus on work that we still are doing and need to do. But in short, we came up with three things after a lot, a lot of meetings. We needed to focus on identification, communication, and treatment. Those were the top three things that we saw that had way too many steps involved to get to that end point. One thing that was very clear to us, and again, as an ED nurse, I know sick, or I think I do, people don't come in saying, I have sepsis. You're never going to, people don't come in saying, I have, I, the chief complaint's not AIDS, the chief complaint's not um, diabetes. There are complications from that. Does that make any sense? People with sepsis come in and they complain of back pain, they complain of fever, they're cancer, many comorbidities, but I tell you what, it's not sepsis. So identification, and then we talked about that. What does sick look like? These patients generally don't look sick. Our overall process of triage was a huge barrier. People come into our department right now, at least in, the, in our organization, they see a greeter. That's the first point of contact. From the greeter, they wait due to higher acuity and higher volume. Then they go to the triage nurse, and then the triage nurse does the triage, and they go back out to the waiting room. And there's, there's 27 processes until they get to a room and, and, and treatment is initiated. I'm going to say 8% because I want you to hang on to that for a minute. Our triage system in itself, we use the ESI, the Emergency Severity Index, which is used by the vast majority of the United States, was a barrier. We'll talk about that. And again, they chief complaints. And we have so many people that use the ED as their primary care. It was very difficult for us to sort through who's an emergency and who's not. Who do we need to see and who do we not? So we used five-level ESI acuity system, and I want you to think of 100 patients. So this is going to put things in perspective for you. If you have 100 patients, 50 of which are in your waiting room and 50 of which are in your ED, approximately 1% to 3% account for a level 1 patient. A level 1 patient needs immediate intervention to sustain a system, a life system in their body. So they need a doctor at the bedside initiating treatment. Level 2 account for 20 to 30% of your patients. So level two is probably going to be your septic patient. They're high risk, they're sick, potential to deteriorate, and of those, and this is taken from version four of the ESI, 50 to 60% of level two patients admitted and are annually are admitted. These are all the rest of your patients. So if you think you, you have 100 patients in a waiting room, and many EDs do, or many EDs do have 50 beds and 50 more in their waiting room, 
This can really happen. So if you have a bunch of septic or potentially septic patients out there, you are going to miss a whole bunch of people that are sitting in the waiting room for a long time without some other way to track and identify. <coughs> so again, we're on the ESI. And just for the ESI, for those of you who are not ER, ESI basically means, is this a high-risk situation? Yes, the potential of sepsis is. patient <coughs> experiencing new onset confusion, lethargy, or disorientation? Yes, is the patient experiencing severe pain or distress? <coughs> Oh, sorry. So, triage criteria. What we have done based on with our HVHC collaborative, one of the members, which is Long Island Jewish, we borrowed something called the Super SERS. I know some of you are familiar with SERS criteria. They went a little bit higher and developed something called Super SERS because SERS was too inclusive and we wanted to narrow down the population that we're really seeing. Suspected source of infection. I, and we, I'll point to you guys in a minute, I like to assume assume that most patients, most, that come into the ED have a suspected source of infection. And I say that loosely because a lot of our patients come in with about 207 comorbidities, which gives me a very good reason to assume that until I know otherwise. And any two of the following. By the way, these are equal to or greater than 38, 38, 30, 36, 0. Systolic of less than, equal to or less than 90. Respirations equal to or, less, or greater than 24. New or unexplained mental status change. This is what our data says about this. This is, by the way, um, we don't, this is not valid. We've not validated this. This is for future testing for some of my, the research gurus that are in the audience. What we know is using this secondary criteria, the super serves in as a, an additional um, piece of triage, 80 to 90%, upwards of over 90 sometimes, of patients that meet super serves criteria in triage are admitted. So if you use that as a secondary piece of triage, you know that an adult patient that comes in meeting super surge type criteria is already at higher risk and is going to assume a mass amount of resources. In order for us to recognize um, and facilitate faster treatment with those patients, we added, and Todd Morell is supposed to, Dr. Morell is supposed to be here, we built in the ED another BPA, a best practice alert. So once the triage nurse notices that these patients meet super surge criteria, they, that is the chief complaint. So you might have, I don't know, let's say 18 people in the waiting room. If the doctors have 20 numbered, well, 10 numbered level twos to see, which one do they have to see first? Because they're all equally sick, right? This one's saying, nope, this one's a little sicker. It's actually a chief complaint that we're using in the ED. So it's not chest pain, it's not fatigue, it's not um, fever, it's not abdominal pain, something vague. This says this patient has a suspected source of infection, could be septic, and this is the one you need to see next of your level two patients. And please do ask, especially if you're not ED, some of this might not make sense. Please feel free to say, that stop quite making sense. Please feel free to ask questions if you need to. So based on that, when the minute the nurse notices super surge criteria and does have a reason to believe that the patient um, has a suspected source of infection, we have a nursing protocol that she can order from. She clicks on that, she will order um, a lactate, a whole blood lactate, fluids, cultures, labs. We left out antibiotics, <coughs> we can talk about that later. But she can initiate treatment immediately. And then we have something called the swarm effect. The nurses and the LNAs will see this and we swarm that patient, even if there's nowhere, and lately there have been, um, something that happens, we don't have a single bed to put this patient in, we will still initiate treatment based on that chief complaint. So 
I'm going to go, this is almost part two of nursing grand rounds, inpatient roll-up. The two things I want you to remember is we've had huge sustainable success in the ED. Uh, if you ask any nurse in the ED what super search criteria is, they're going to be able to tell you. They're going to be able to tell you what the evidence-based bundle is, what the three-hour bundle is, and how we treat sepsis. What we're working on right now in the house, another one of Steinbrenner's great ideas, which is a great idea, we want to roll out or disseminate this information in the rest of the house. And, and it's something I completely believe in, but it's something that without you guys on board, the barriers are almost insurmountable, and we're not gonna be able to succeed without people like you to help us. So with the inpatient rollout right now, we're testing something under the scenes. And it's similar to what we do. Under the scenes, when, when an LNA or a nurse enters vital signs, there is a BPA that's firing, and a couple of us are getting this BPA. And the firing is the patient's meeting super search criteria. So right now, me and one of the, uh, Mary Catherine Rawls, who's sitting in front of me, is one of our medical, surgical, clinical nurse specialists, will run, are able to run this BPA report in the morning, and we can do visits on these nurses on these medical surgical floors, and yes, it is inclusive to medical surgical. This is what it will probably look like when it's tested on the medical surgical floors. Your patient meets super search criteria. Would you like to open the nursing per protocol order set? Barriers, barriers, barriers. I, um, I'm probably stunned by the barriers that we have been encountering, and I, and I think that that's probably what I want to talk about most of all, is barriers to team care, barriers to taking care of patients, barriers to um, sustainability of projects that should work. What is the source of infection? What is suspected infection? Tunnel vision, tunnel vision by our nurses, tunnel vision by our doctors. We have multiple specialties caring for patients, newer nurses, we have a newer workforce. Lack of confidence in our ability, not only as nurses, but even as, as newer physicians sometimes, and communication. So what? So what? So what? So chances of developing sepsis in the hospital are higher than patients entering the, entering the hospital with sepsis. That's, um, I think, incredibly interesting, especially as you know, we won't focus on the, this a lot right now, but I want you to keep in mind our collapse rates in this hospital right now. The chances of, a de of developing a hospital-acquired infection are very, very real to everyone in this room. Sepsis is the single leading cause of hospital mortality. It is higher than stroke or MI combined. Nurses must focus on recognition, and recognition is probably the most important thing we can do as nurses. We have to be proactive, then reactive. So if we could get nothing else across to someone, MI equals stroke equals sepsis. They are all equally deadly. If I asked, if I asked you, if somebody's having chest pain, I don't know, where, where do you work? General surgery. If somebody is on the table and they're about to come in, they're clutching their chest and they're pale and diaphragmatic and they're having chest pain, what do you do? I'm an LNA, so I... I Even so. Okay, so I... That's okay, but you know to do something, yes. right? Yes. And that's when I'm, you I'm know you're going to tell a nurse. I'm going to tell a nurse, and then we're going to go. Right. It's something. It's a big deal. If somebody has left-sided new onset, they've been fine all day, new onset, left facial droop, and a left arm droop, what are you going to do? CT scan. Right. We all know that when you see this, if you see a chest pain in this, if you see this is what you do. We're trying to get the super surge criteria the same thought process. 
If you see super search criteria, that means you have to do something. I'm, I'm not saying they have sepsis, but I'm saying there's something wrong. It's a symptom of something bad. And that's what we need to teach our nurses. You have to do something. So the major barrier of injury, and you hear me saying this over and over, is recognizing sick. If you go to any medical surgical nurse, and, and I don't or surgical, or even LNA, what does sick look like to you? It's very different to everyone. What I think of as sick, what an OB nurse thinks of as sick, what an ICU nurse thinks of as sick is very different. People, you will find, depending on their specialty, look at sick and view sick as different. Do you agree? You guys, right? If you ask them, sick is different. Perception versus reality. When I go to a floor, and I do a lot of floor visits with my peer, Mary Catherine Rawls, when I say your patient has a, a suspected or a potential source of infection, they say, and they say, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? This is what they want to see. They want to see something with pus and ooze and red and green and yellow and yuck. This is what you're going to see. You're looking for a tree through the woods. That's probably a bad analogy, but you're looking for something that's not there. Mary Catherine and I, actually, I don't think you were on this one. We recently did a visit, this is a little while ago, and I went to the floor and this patient was incredibly sick and I showed up on the floor and the patient, um, I don't know, had a pressure of the 60s, you know this story, you've heard it a million times. Pressure of the 60s, heart rate 130s, fever, blah, blah, blah. And, she's, and I said, you know, your patient is really sick, I'm really concerned. And she sat on this for quite a while, which wasn't necessarily her fault, conversation for another time. But I said, and there's many sources of infection, can we go in and assess the lines? And she said, what are you talking about? There's no sources of infection. And the patient had a rectal tube, a wound vac, a pick line, you know, forget some. IV. Yeah, IV, I mean, a Foley catheter, right. Every possible thing coming out of the body that could get infected was in or out of the body, and she didn't see that as a source of infection. Um, these are not, this isn't because they're not smart, it's because we're not standardizing what a suspected source of infection is. Anything that is foreign going into or out of that body is a suspected source of infection. It doesn't have to look ugly and nasty, but evidence after evidence after evidence says anything going into and out of that body that was placed by us is a source of infection. Approximately 90% of primary bloodstream infections occur in patients with intravascular devices. Yes, especially central lines, but peripheral lines are also a huge source of infection. Please do not assume that because your patient has a peripheral line, and that's the only line they have, they do not have a source of infection. I think you guys would also agree, especially if you, and I know some of you attend safety rounds, you hear all the time about these triple lumens, that there's no evidence behind them being placed or staying in there, yet somehow they remain. Bad news for patients. Although patients may have been weakened by heart disease or cancer or other chronic diseases, it is often sepsis that leads to their death. Of all hospital deaths nationally, as many as 52% were among patients diagnosed with sepsis. Sepsis hospitalization contributed to 21.2% of all hospital charges. It is higher here in DH. And I, I've got some statistics this morning from Dr. Tanzier, but they're not hard statistics, so I'm not going to give them to you, but they're considerably higher. So I, I really, really wish and pray for standardization for us to be very cognizant of this. Sources of infection. As I see a lot when I visit floors, and this happens not only with medical doctors but nurses, 
I'll go up and say, your patient is triggering a super surge response. Let's go assess them. And they'll say, uh, I don't have to assess their abdomen because they have hip surgery. Or um, I'm not worried about their heart because they have knee replacement. Whatever you came in for, you, they should be assuming, the nurses should be assuming the infection can be somewhere else. And we're not. We're tunnel visioned on the reason the patient came in to include the, the, the doctors. So we need to be assessing every part of that body to make sure we're not missing something, especially when I say indwelling catheters, anything going into that body needs to be assessed. 12 to 26 days. So the mean time, according to evidence, for developing a bloodstream infection in the hospital is between 12 and 26 days. The older your patient is, or the longer they've been in here, or the more comorbidities they have, that time is exponentially decreased. I ask this all the time. I know I, know, I, know I don't have a lot of immediate bedside clinicians in here, but I ask oftentimes, how long is the longest time your patient has been here in the hospital? And I hear 30 days, 35 days. This is, what I, this is what I see, and I guarantee we're all doing it, and I guarantee we're all seeing it. We have a lot of educators in here. Mary Catherine, how was Mr. Smith this morning? Oh, he's, he's good. He's been here a while, and same I know him. Yep, I know him, same as he's always been. I, I don't even know how to say that. Every patient, every time, needs the same assessment. I don't care how well you know him. I don't care that you know his cousins, daughters, grandchildren's name by now. Every patient, every time, the same assessment. Every line needs to be accounted for. How long has it been in? What's running in it? What's not running in it? Who ordered it? Why is it there? Every patient, every time, the same assessment. We cannot assume if we do, we are failing our patients. Super serves, again, I just want to point out, this is a, sim a symptom of pathological inflammation. It is a symptom of being very sick. It is not a disease, although it can lead to sepsis. I also want you to focus the super serves is something bad in itself or at least needs to be investigated. Think of kryptonite to su Superman, and that's why I use the green. Think of um, super serves to your patient. What is it? There's a reason that, that, that the body is, is responding this way. You, as a registered nurse, need to be at the bedside and figure that out. Look, listen, and feel. I was having a conversation this morning with some people. Um, when I go, and, and Mary Catherine goes with me too, when we, when we grab some of the newer nurses at the bedside, oftentimes they don't carry stethoscopes. You don't carry a stethoscope, and you've been with your patient 12 hours. You're already behind. You're failing. You're failing your patient. You have to look and listen and feel. You cannot be relying on these monitors. How is my patient meditating? How do they feel? You have to touch them. Have you touched your patient? Take your gloves off. Are they hot? Are they pooping and peeing? It sounds funny, but if your patient has been having normal bowel movements for three or four days and has now developed copious green frothy stools, that is a change. That's a change that needs to be assessed. Every single line needs to be assessed, reported on, and you need to know your left. Oftentimes, I will go to a room and I will ask a nurse about a patient and I'll say, this is what I see, and the patient is kind of confused per your note, and there's uh, last is another thing, the yeah, white counts 11.3, blah, blah, blah. What I hear oftentimes is, well, I asked the other nurse, and the nurse said he was not mentating, he, he's mentating the same as he was last night. Okay, well, how was he three days ago? That's what I want these nurses to be able to do. Look at the entire picture. Three days ago, he was mentating like you and me. Last night, he stopped mentating like that, 
and the nurses aren't giving a good enough report to capture the entire picture. He stopped peeing. This happens so often because the LNAs are awesome, but you chart, you empty your um, catheter and you put in the INO, and the nurses fail to walk over to the, the computer and capture the information that they are now 300 cc's, putting out 300 cc's less than they did yesterday. We've become very reliant on LNAs and technology, and we're missing valuable information by not assessing our patients. And check the labs, know your labs. Don't know that the weight count is 11.3 today. Know that it's been eight and nine for the last five days, and today it's 11.3. Know your patients. Census red flags. Any two of the following deserve immediate attention. This does not mean they have sepsis. This means that you as a registered nurse are at the bedside assessing the patient. Hypotension, as we have found in our own studies here in the house, is the most common indicator of hypoperfusion and badness. Again, based on our own internal studies, <clears throat> hypotension was the single most common indicator of something bad going on in our patients and needing attention. Sustain your new tachycardia. Uh, Mary Catherine has actually seen this with me before. If you say the heart rate's at 130 and we come up and ask you, why is the heart rate at 130? You need to be able to tell us or tell your doctor or tell me, tell someone. That's not a normal heart rate. Is it normal for someone in rapid AFib and you've known they've been like that for a week? It's still not normal. I want you to be able not to do, but I want the nurses to be able to articulate a plan of care and know what's going on with these patients. Cool, vasoconstricted skin. We don't do this very often anymore, but cap refill is such an underutilized tool for assessing that. Flush cheeks, decreasing urine output, critically, critically important to assess for organ function. Respiratory rate, I know you've been waiting for me to talk about respiratory rate. Um, respiratory rate 24 or greater than. So this happens every single time. Mary Catherine says, you tell, you tell the story all the time, but it's one of my favorites. So what do you think happens every time that we have a, BP, or a, a BPA trigger and we go up to a room and the patient's heart rate's 140 and they're 103, what is always the respirations? Always. 16 or 18. And it happens every time too. I swear they were. I swear they were. They, that's, I checked them and I swear they were. And I said, well, why don't we have a bet? Why don't you and I go in there, we're gonna count the respirations for a whole minute. Shockingly, they're like 34. So, and they say, well, they were like that when I checked. I'm not here, I, I get it. I'm not, I'm not here to judge, we've all, we've all guesstimated respirations. The fact is, this is a usable and reliable tool. I would hate to think that we take it out because we are unwilling to do the right thing for our patients. Please place your hand on their chest and count them for a whole minute. Respirations are a, a, a valuable tool of information that are that are utilized inappropriately. So, change in level of consciousness. You heard um, if there are if their baseline is already kind of bucky, you need to pay really close attention to this. What is normal for them? Nurses need to know this. If they weren't there when the patient came in, they need to dig even farther to find out what is the baseline level of consciousness for this patient. I don't know if they're normal. I might actually have to pick up the phone and call a family member. Any change from baseline is something you need to assess. Bedside handoff. What is a good report? Um, every patient, every time, every line, every time. We don't have a standard. I think you guys would agree. I know people say, I know we have SBAR. We, as nurses, 
need to make sure that we are going through every system at the bedside and capturing the same information on every patient every time because that's how we're missing stuff. Trend the lactate, and we'll go on about this in a few more minutes, but evaluation of lactate clearance through serial measurement has been shown to be a useful predictor of morbidity and mortality. Lactate is um, the nurse's best friend in this hospital, and I'll tell you why in a minute, especially as we are moving forward with implementing this inpatient sepsis protocol. I, um, I want to be able, I want nurses in the ER to call the floor nurses and say, hey, he came in, his initial lactate was 4.3, we have resuscitated him, it's down to 1.2, and you need to check it again. Make sure that it's staying down. <clears throat> there are other signs of, uh, there are other causes of lactate, elevated lactate besides sepsis and sepsis shock, but I think you would agree none of them are great reasons. So regardless, and I hear this from physicians, well, it could be something else that's raising their lactate. Agree, but none of them are good. So pay attention. <laughs> so lactate. This, no matter what your studies say, and there's a ton of studies about lactate, we all agree on one thing. Mortality rates increase as lactate levels increase. The goal is to track response. If your lactate level goes up and stays up, Something's happening, something, something bad is happening, period. Lactate levels will rise, but they should go down. No response is a very, very bad sign. So you as a registered nurse, we do have a protocol nurse order, and we should be teaching that to our nurses to use. If you're worried about your patient, you can use that protocol nurse order, you can check the lactate, and you can trend the lactate. If that lactate is going up and the physician may or may not be listening to your story, and this is happening, they can't ignore the lactate. Moderately elevated lactate between 2.5 and 4. A highly elevated or lactate greater than 4 is a very, very sick patient, and you need to pay attention. More on lactate. So a low lactate level does not mean you're out of the woods. And I say this again, and this is, what we're ha this is what's happening right now. Right now in the ED, we are doing really well. We are recognizing, we're bundling, we're treating, we're resuscitating, and we are delivering a package that would have gone to the ICU two years ago, and we're sending them into medicine. What's happening now, though, is we're, medicine's receiving them, and they're starting to trend back up. Their heart rate is like 92, going up to 110, going up to 120. Their lactate was down to 1.3, and it's starting to trend up. And the LNAs are doing their due diligence and they're putting in the vitals, but we're not paying attention. We're not watching those vitals across the spectrum of time. It's not the LNA's responsibility to, to be able to make an assessment based on those vitals, it's the nurses. And also, as you guys know, it's the LNA, I'm picking on you because you're an LNA, it's okay. LNAs will write down a series of, I don't know, let's say 15 vital signs, correct? I'm making this up. 10. 10, 10 vital signs. And you go from room to room and room. And by the time you actually write those vital signs down, what, how, how much time has passed from the first to the last? So you go and you enter them all in, right? And then maybe you report, finally you get one that seems wacky, but not wacky enough when you run into your nurse. A significant amount of time may have passed. If your patient has sepsis, and at the, from this point on is not recognized as sepsis, in one hour time frame, if we've done nothing, do nothing, they have an 8% increase in mortality. So it's, it's not your fault, but what I'm saying 
is if we are not paying attention, all of us, takes a village, to that patient, an 8% increase in mortality because we wasted an hour where you're doing your job, taking your 10 vital signs and entering, and by the time the nurse gets aware of it and calls the doctor, and it's this huge process where we've wasted an immense amount of time to do the right thing. Know your patient, know your protocols, you must assess. Data validation. Um, not everybody in here, as I have found, uses data validation. But there are two things, I don't know how many of you have data validation where you can validate a series of data on your, not most emails, Phillips, right? So you can data validate hours, hours and hours of data. And what you'll find sometimes is your patient came in with a pressure of, I don't know, 110, and over the course of hours has dropped into the 70 systolic and their heart rate's going up and their, or their temperature's going down, which is also incredibly serious. And you validate this, but you haven't done anything to assess. There's two notes that say, patient resting at bedside, call bell within reach. You've got to be watching your patient. You've got to know what's going on with your patient. Or even better, and I see this a lot too, MD made aware. What does that mean? If you have, and actually Mary Catherine has seen this, if you have a patient whose pressure's in the 60s and you say MD made aware, but you go three more hours and that pressure remains in the 60s, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. MD made aware, doctors are busy, I'm busy, right? I have kids, they say all the time, I told you that, I made you aware of that. I remember that. Make sure you say MD made aware and they said what? What was the plan of action that they told you to do? Saying MD made aware, it's not gonna fly with you guys. Gotta say what they, especially if three hours go by and nothing was done. I'm picking on the but I can't, it's okay. <laughs> so 8% every hour, Increase in mortality on a septic patient that we do nothing. Remain vigilant. Yes, a lot of this was absolutely directed to the bedside nurse, but um, now I can't pick on you. I am really that mean. I believe in this. I believe in you that you need to assess your patient, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what my, uh, lastly, and my last concern on this note, <clears throat> this is why I'm concerned about the inpatient BPA. We have to, as a team, and there's a team of a lot of experts in here, it's gonna require us to be out there at the bedside with these nurses and teach really good, hard assessment skills that they're not getting because we are, we're incredibly short-staffed and we're short on experts. But in order for this to succeed, in order for our collapse and CAUTI rates to go down and to save these patients, we're gonna to have to be out there. So that's all I have. nurses' brains were trained to do for decades. It's really not what we're doing anymore, and things are completely fractured. It seems like, from what you're describing, nurses are, uh, there's confusion about what the priorities are to pay attention to. Yeah. For decades, we were trained to look at a patient, assess them, touch them, mm. count things, count trips, count things we don't do anymore. 
And in the process of gathering the data yourself, you're assimilating it and you're making a judgment about it. But when you delegate the data collection to somebody else, part of the assimilation of that data is gone. So now you're surprised that nurses are not sitting and looking at a spreadsheet with a bunch of numbers. But they're just numbers. They weren't collected by that person. It didn't go through their brain, and it doesn't mean nearly as much. So this is the natural outcome of delegating a lot of nursing care. Um, this, is, this is what was going to happen. So what are we going to do about it? I'm really glad you asked that because I'm a party of one. And there have been some people to suggest stop. I know this is going to brace yourself. This is not going to go wrong. Stop allowing LNAs to take vitals. And the reason why is because you guys capture critical information. It's not being evaluated effectively. It's not being delivered in a timely manner. This has nothing to do with you. I, I don't have the answer, but I totally agree with you, and I think we have a lot of educators in this room as well, um, to include new graduate nurses who come in. I can train them to do, to do the Z or the E fashion, or I can train you to do tasks on a patient. I want you to know why, though. Why are we doing what we're doing? And we don't know that. And I have to, I have to, with all due respect to at least a few physicians in the room, I just recently heard, do you need carbs nurses in here? Oh, recently. Okay. Oh, yeah. I recently heard a story from a cardiology nurse, and we were talking about team care in general. And she said that she likes to listen to the report when the interventional radiologist, whoever it is, one of the card stocks, talks to the patient. And I guess at one point he actually looked up and turned his head and said, can I help you until we start including everyone as part of the team and talking about that as a team that we all have something to add? There, there's just many things that we need to do better. And just to tag along with what Richard said, I wonder if adding a BPA is going to even further sort of automate our care and take the clinical judgment. Where they're out of it. If, if the nurses think, oh, if I don't get BPA, then things are fine. And if, if I do, oh, it's going to tell me. It'll, it'll tell me if there's a problem. So I, don't, I, I worry a lot about uh, what the computer does to our um, critical thinking and nursing care. Yeah. So I think it's great yeah. to have it, but I just think it. But if you don't know what to do with it, well, that's right. Have, right. Or to come to expect it and not not to not to think act on it without it. So I think it's you know it's probably very important to have it, but I think the education around it needs to really focus on exactly what you're saying so passionately. Which has to be human education. I have to be honest with you. As we all know, we did have a, a very recent uh, ambulatory sepsis rollout, but the, the human factor and there's many reasons. I'm not saying they're right or wrong, but the human factor in education and dissemination and diffusion, especially in nursing, is critically important because. All of us, to include myself, there's some people you just don't feel comfortable talking to. Um, you need someone who's benign, that knows that content, and that can spend the time at the bedside with you, helping you master a concept. And we, for time, and I think you'd agree, you guys are short on time. I get that you know you're short on time. So you, there's many people in here who know they're short on time. And I don't have the answer, but I'm afraid for the moms and the dads and the parents that come in here that are 65 years old with diabetes and cancer,
because you've got that newer nurse who means well, but doesn't know what she doesn't know. Or the new attending who's focused on her hip surgery, but has lost touch with the fact that she's now pooling green phlegm in her lower, you know, anyway, I digress. But it's, it's big, it's a big picture. And until we get everybody on board, but I don't have the answer, I don't. But thank you for raising the question. I mean, I think one of the issues, and I really um, appreciate what you said about, you know, we're not critically thinking, is that we look great when we've documented. Mm -hmm. I've heard the comment that if you have great documentation, that makes the patient got lousy care. Because there's no way you could have done all that stuff and taken care of the patient. Yeah. The documentation burden <clears throat> is so great. And at what point do we, you know, data, 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 we're really into data here at Dartmouth, it's very important, you gotta know the vital signs. But at what point are we not paying attention to these critical issues, but you go in and you see that the patient is the learner and um, things were discussed. And I don't know how many times I've read a chart that said, you know, call bell wasn't reach. It, it, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't, exactly. So I, it's just like, we need to be entering information that is useful and I don't know that our EMR is set up to do that yet. We're still growing that capability and in the meantime we've got these years of crossover that we're not capturing stuff. Mm -hmm. I review charts all the time and if you try to see what happened during an inpatient stay you are going to be really out of luck. Yeah. So we, we have to figure out a way to get the documentation to be information. Mm -hmm. Funny you say that. I think anyone who looks at an ED chart, Mary's a classic example. It's not easy for surgery to see an ED chart or cards to see. It's not easy for us to find each other's notes. They're not easy to navigate. So even when you do do direct nursing care or, or medicine care or whatever, you really have to search to find all right, what was done for this patient, which is why the report is so important because who knows? And do you really have time to spend 15 minutes searching for the bank trough or, or a gender? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? Not to sort of pile on this issue, but I was um, looking at a, a memo recently about the nursing admission assessment and what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And the top three reasons for doing the admission assessment were regulatory compliance sort of things and getting the light to turn green. None of them said, get to know your patient, which is, you know, so I think we need to take a step back from the documentation, Sheila, mm -hmm. as you're saying, and really think we need to see the patient in the bed, not just have our nose on the computer. No, we've, we've talked about that, and um, that's also, I, I actually even think that's higher than <clears throat> organizational. That's something where nurses need to get involved mm -hmm. with their state and state councils, um, because you're right. Because I, I'm not a medical surgical nurse, but it does put things into perspective when you call them and say, I just got two new patients. It's not that they don't want to care for the patient, it's that they're so busy with the mandatory documentation that they have to do after they've received those two new patients that they couldn't possibly go to the bedside to right. assume care of a third. So it's very interesting. It's, we have to try to look at it that way. It's not, it's not refusing care, it's trying to make sure there's a cost to pay if they don't do the, the mandatory regulatory documentation, which is heavily audited. So. 
Right, and it's heavily audited because that's where the money comes from. Mm -hmm. So we need to get the value back in and watching the patient's goals of care and making sure that their goals are met. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You're passionate, I'm passionate. I think it's great to be passionate. I don't think we're going to get anywhere if we're not passionate. Is that true, Dr. Kraft? <laughs> Always Always. <laughs> when it comes to improving patient care, we were laughing earlier that when people say you're really passionate about something, that's generally a way to say, tone it down. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and certainly many of my peers know in here that I'm very passionate about a few issues, but sepsis is definitely one because this really will save a life. We've seen it. We've absolutely saved lives, real lives. So. I do believe in that. Any other questions? You three, you three, gotta have one question. No, thank you. Although I am happy to report to you that just meeting with some of the med surge clinical educators, we were talking about incorporating the subject whole bundle and everything into our scenarios. So that yes. they get it down downstairs so, in their scenarios when they. That's the Sigma Theta Tau. That was one of the huge. They were actually incorporating success into their um, sim simulation learning, and it was yeah. hugely powerful. So that's so, going down the pike. Yeah, which is exciting. Yeah, very. I think that's awesome. That's oh, neat. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. So I don't have anything else. I thank you all very much, Mary. Nobody else. Uh, one clinical question. I'm curious. You, I think you had said that of the. Patients who come into the ED who meet the criteria, 80% of them are, so are admitted. Yes. Who are the other patients that have meet those criteria, but yet are healthy enough to be sent? Oh, they are the Dartmouth students who drink too much or have oh. um, strep throat or, uh -huh. yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I'm thinking of yeah, uh, the, the, the girl with really severe cramps that, that they'll meet the criteria. I, I'm, I'm talking... And remember, I think two-thirds of the patients that are truly subject are over the age of 65. And I, it does seem to be pretty predictive, not that they have sepsis, that there's something wrong with them. A 65-year-old with these kind of vitals, something is wrong. Whether or not it's sepsis is, doesn't even matter. It's enough for you to say, I need to figure out what is going on with this patient. Thank you again.